Good morning, church. A blessed Pentecost Sunday to all of you, and it is good to be with you as we join together in worship. Are you familiar with the name Hildegard of Bingen? Some amens from the congregation. I love that. So in case you don't know, uh, Hildegard of Bingen was a, a German Benedictine abbess who lived for 81 years in the 12th century. She was a writer, a philosopher, a theological visionary. She was a poet, a mystic, a spiritual guide, a medical practitioner, a mother superior, the founder of two monasteries and the person considered to be the founder of natural history in Germany. In her spare time, she wrote music. And in fact, Hildegard of Bingen is one of the best known and most recorded composers of sacred monophony. To put it as simply as I can put it, Hildegard of Bingen was a Renaissance woman about two centuries before the Renaissance. Amazing. One of my heroes. In one of the drawers of my desk, I keep a poem from Hildegard of Bingen. The poem is entitled, O Holy Spirit of Fire. And periodically, I, I read the poem. Not sure why, I think it has to do with the fact that this particular portion of poetry intensifies my convictions about the character of God. And I would like to share a portion of the poetry uh, with you today. It's not the poetry, it's not the poem in its entirety. And I don't know how it is that you relate to poetry. Some of you may love poetry. For some of you, poetry might not speak your heart language. But however it is that you relate to poetry in general, on this Pentecost Sunday, I'm simply inviting you to allow these words of poetry to fall uh, meaningfully upon your heart. And listen for what these words may reveal about the truth of God. O Holy Spirit of fire, life in the life of all life, holy are you, enlivening all things. Holy are you, a healing balm to the broken. Holy are you, washing blistered wounds. O holy breath, O fire of life, O sweetness in my breast, infusing my heart with the fine scent of truth. O great way that runs through all, from the heights across the earth and in the depths, you encompass all and unify all. From you the clouds stream and the ether rises. From your stones precious water pours, springs well up and birth waterways, and the earth sweats green with life. And eternally do you bring forth knowledge by the breath of wisdom. 
All praise to you, you who are the song of praise and the joy of life, you who are hope and the greatest treasure, bestowing the gift of light. Oh, Holy Spirit of fire, life in the life of all life, holy are you, enlivening all things. Whenever I engage the language and the uh, images of that portion of poetry, I'm at once reminded that whenever the church speaks about the Holy Spirit, we are speaking of nothing less than the very personhood of God. The Holy Spirit, in other words, and this is important, think with me theologically for a moment. The Holy Spirit is not a portion of God or a part or a product of God or an instrument of God that can be reduced to its functionality. Rather, the Holy Spirit is God's very self, intimately present in every life, whether named or unnamed, and dynamically active in the nooks and crannies of human history. Over the years, the Holy Spirit has been inspired or described in different ways, and you've heard some of the descriptions. The comforter, the advocate, the breath of God, the third person of the Trinity. But all of that language is essentially our best effort to describe the practically indescribable Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a what, but a who. The Holy Spirit's pronoun is not it, but she or he or they. All of which is to say, the Holy Spirit is God, fully present, though unseen, and relentlessly at work for the redemption of lives and circumstances, including our lives and our circumstances. God at work on our behalf. Holy Spirit. In the scripture this morning, we hear the wonderful story about the disciples' unique encounter of the Holy Spirit at a Jewish harvest festival called Pentecost. Pentecost, by the way, is not the debut of the Holy Spirit. But Pentecost is the fresh revelation of the same Spirit that has existed as long as God has existed because the Holy Spirit is God. For example, in the Genesis account of creation, when we're told that the wind of God moved across the chaos that existed before the beginning of time as we know it, who could that wind have possibly been but the Holy Spirit? In the Old Testament, when we are told that the Spirit was in Joshua, or that God's Spirit came upon Gideon, Samson, Saul, David, who could that Spirit have possibly been? Well, the church over the years has steadfastly proclaimed that that Spirit was God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And in the New Testament, when the angel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will fall on you, 
so that you might give birth to a very special child. That is not an alternative spirit that is being described, but rather God's very self. So Pentecost is not the debut of the Holy Spirit, but it certainly is one of her most dramatic and trajectory-altering manifestations. I mean, think about it. There's something like fire at Pentecost. There's something like wind at Pentecost. There are suddenly these strange languages, not for the purpose of creating liturgical spectacle, but so that all the visitors in that portion of the world might be able to hear the truth of the gospel in their own tongue. And most impressively, at Pentecost there are transformed lives. Like the life of Peter, for example, one of the disciples, who just 50 days earlier was denying Christ in public to save his own skin. Here at Pentecost, Peter is riskily proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus before a large and unfamiliar crowd. How does that happen in 50 days? Hard to explain without the work of the Holy Spirit. And there was another manifestation of the Holy Spirit about which we heard in Scripture this morning. This one from John's Gospel. Did you hear the language? Jesus breathed on his disciples. Jesus breathed on the gathered disciples and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then strangely and starkly, Jesus immediately begins to talk about the urgency of offering and receiving forgiveness. Receive the Holy Spirit, disciples. Now, let me talk with you about how important it is to offer and receive forgiveness. Because if you forgive the sins of any, those sins are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained, at least in your own heart. Now, what's that all about? Why in the world would Jesus be so eager in this moment of bestowing the Holy Spirit to make a connection between the Holy Spirit's work and forgiveness? You may have some thoughts about that. I don't have a definitive answer, but I'm wondering this morning. I'm wondering what Jesus might have seen that day as he looked upon his gathered disciples, based upon what we know about them. I wonder what it was that Jesus might have been seeing as he bestowed the Holy Spirit upon them. Keep in mind, there's every indication that these disciples were most likely harboring some degree of bitterness toward a Roman government whose system of taxation over the recent years had become arbitrary and oppressive to an entire population of people. It's certainly possible, maybe even likely, that these disciples were harboring a burgeoning spirit of contempt toward a religious leadership and a political hierarchy that had recently conspired to put Jesus to death. And if we believe the Gospels, these disciples had a long track record of resentment. Do you remember that moment in Scripture when the disciples resented a group of children? for interrupting and desiring Jesus' attention 
Do you remember when this group of disciples became frustrated with a crowd of people simply because the folks were hungry for food? And my goodness, these disciples so frequently would become resentful of one another, especially when the conversation turned in the direction of this question. Well, who really is greatest among us? Who gets the best seat in the reign of God? Maybe Jesus saw all of that as he looked upon these disciples whom he loved that day as he was bestowing the Holy Spirit. Maybe Jesus, maybe Jesus understood that these resentments that the disciples were harboring, if left unchecked, could become the kind of hatred that would make it incredibly difficult for the priorities of God to find sufficient air to breathe in the atmosphere of their inner lives. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus breathes deeply. He breathes in the character of God, which he himself incarnated. He breathes out the Holy Spirit so that the gathered disciples might breathe that air along with him. And by speaking immediately of the reality and urgency of forgiveness in the midst of bestowing the Holy Spirit, perhaps Jesus is making the point that one of the Holy Spirit's most urgent and beautiful gifts is to equip the offering and receiving of authentic forgiveness. so that souls that are oppressed by things like hatred and resentment and bitterness might be set free to breathe deeply. And here we are 2,000 years later, and while I don't know the intricacies of your life and I don't know the details of your particular life story, I would hazard a guess. My guess is that the matter of offering and receiving forgiveness is as urgent a matter for you as it is for me, and as it was for the gathered disciples receiving the Holy Spirit that day. But what do we mean by forgiveness? Because have you noticed this? The church and its vocabulary and its rhetoric will often throw around words like forgiveness. in sometimes so vague a way, at other times in so manipulative a way, that the church's people are left wondering, okay, what kind of forgiveness are you describing? That's an important question, and it's far beyond what I'm able to address, certainly in a single sermon. But I will tell you in just a couple of moments what I don't mean by forgiveness. For example, I do not believe that forgiveness means forgetting. You know, I love language, I love the history of words, and somewhere in the history of language, those two concepts became connected, right? Forgive and forget. But the problem, morally and spiritually, the problem is that forgotten offenses can often lead to the perpetuation of mistreatment and the sidestepping of meaningful accountability. And so I don't believe that the church has ever meant forgetting by forgiveness. But maybe forgiveness does mean remembering differently. 
Maybe forgiveness does mean a redeemed remembering. Remembering without hatred. Remembering without malevolence. Remembering without cultivating a fantasy of retaliation. I don't believe that forgiveness means ignoring wrongdoing. It can't. That's too anemic to be authentic forgiveness. But forgiveness might mean addressing the wrongdoing without diminishing the personhood of even the one who commits it. I don't believe that forgiveness means waiting around for somebody to repent. Don't misunderstand. It's a great thing when somebody who has wronged us repents. That's an amazing thing. I celebrate it when that happens. But if your life experience is anything like mine and somebody has wronged you, and you're making your forgiveness entirely dependent upon that person's willingness to repent, yeah, I I suspect that has worked out for you as well as it has for me. So I don't believe that forgiveness means waiting around for somebody to repent, but it might mean stubbornly refusing to allow bitterness to become the governor of our inner monologue. I don't believe that forgiveness always means reconciliation. When it does, and two parties are moving toward one another in repentance and forgiveness, praise be to God, that is an amazing thing. But be clear about this, forgiveness does not always mean reconciliation, and in fact, there are some situations in which which reconciliation would be practically dangerous and spiritually irresponsible. So while forgiveness might not always mean reconciliation, it may mean stubbornly refusing over time to allow a spirit of contempt to occupy the deepest portions of who we are. And that kind of forgiveness, friends, that kind of forgiveness requires some deep breathing over time. It's not an event, it's a journey, and it's a journey sustained by consistent, deep breathing in the Holy Spirit. Breathing in, forgiveness received. Breathing out, forgiveness offered. And when we're intentional about that deep breathing, I'm just mystical enough to believe that Jesus will be faithful to begin forgiving through us the very people that we are not on our own inclined to forgive. I guess I'm just mystical enough to believe that Jesus works that way. That through us and through our deep breathing, Jesus begins to forgive even those people we are not inclined to forgive. I wonder what that kind of deep breathing looks like in your life these days what it will require. It was a Saturday evening and I was facilitating a worship service. And most of the 80 persons who were present for this worship service were in recovery for addiction. In fact, it was a weekly service that created space for those in recovery. And in fact, the language of addiction recovery was woven into the liturgy each week. And as you might imagine, in that kind of setting, testimony time was very important. Truth-telling. 
And on that Saturday evening, a man stood up and he stood up during testimony time and he introduced himself as John. And he said, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. And then he told us that he is a recovering addict. He was at steps eight and nine of his 12-step recovery, which meant that the time had come for him to begin to make amends to some of the people that he had wronged in his journey. And in fact, he went on to say that what brought him to town that weekend was that he was to reconnect with a former best friend to whom he had lied and from whom he had stolen to support his recovery or excuse me, to support his addiction. But he found out just that Saturday morning, and remember this was a Saturday evening service, he found out just that Saturday morning that that friend he had come to see had died three weeks earlier of cancer. I don't know why I'm telling you all of this, he said to us that night, about 80 people. I don't know why I'm telling you all of this. I guess I just wanted you to know that my best friend is dead. And now I feel I won't ever be able to tell him how sorry I am that I sacrificed our friendship on the altar of my addiction. I just want my best friend to forgive me. I need to hear my best friend tell me that he forgives me. And with that, John put his head in his hands and he began to weep. And by the way, as I look back on that, it makes me wonder how many people in our services of worship, here and elsewhere, how many people in our services of worship have that kind of an internal conversation about the matter of forgiveness? Well, I just so want this person to forgive me. I so want to hear that person tell me that they forgive me or perhaps it's in the other direction I know that there's a person in my life who is asking for my forgiveness I wonder how many conversations like that are happening even today in the souls of those who worship so the liturgist that night looked at me across the room as though she were trying to communicate something without words, didn't quite know what she was trying to communicate, but before long she grabbed hold of the microphone and said something astonishing. John, she said, please know that you're with people tonight who are heartbroken with you over your loss. We're so sorry about your friend. We are so sorry. We're weeping with you. But John, it's on my heart to ask you a question and it's okay for you to say no to what I'm asking. But I'm wondering, would you allow this congregation to stand in the place of your friend tonight? Because we know you're in an important journey, John. It's a journey of healing. We want to support you in that. We're here for you. We love you. Would you allow us to stand in the place of your friend so that we might receive whatever confession you want to offer to us? Would you trust us with that? so that we might then speak into your life those words of forgiveness that we believe God longs for you to hear and that maybe even your friend longs for you to hear. Would you allow 
us to do that for you. And John looked up and he said, you would really do that for me? And she said wisely, well, of course we would. Because John, look around. Everybody here is in desperate need of the very same forgiveness that you're seeking. Of course we would do that for you. And I won't go into the details of what transpired, and quite frankly, I don't even remember all the details. I guess I would only say that over the next 10 minutes or 15 minutes in that worship service, there were people who were engaging congregationally in spiritual deep breathing. I wish you all could have been there to hear the prayers that were prayed, the words that were spoken. It was an amazing experience. And after worship, I met John face to face and I asked him how he was doing. And he said, this was his language, I came, I walked in here tonight suffocating. That was what he said, suffocating with the guilt that I thought I'd have to carry this way for the rest of my life. And I'm still working on that guilt, he said, but somehow tonight the people of this church helped me to breathe again. Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit upon his gathered disciples and then immediately pointed them in the direction of the forgiveness that the Holy Spirit both uh, equips and enables. And my question is, in your pilgrimage this Pentecost, where is it that the Holy Spirit is calling you to do some of that deep breathing of forgiveness in your life. Breathing in, forgiveness received. Breathing out, forgiveness offered. Where is it that the Holy Spirit is calling you to practice some of that breathing? Is it in your family? Is it in your school? Is it in your workplace? Is it in the rhythms of social media? Is it in the quiet thoughts of your own inner monologue? Or are you most in need of doing some of that heavy breathing, that heavy breathing of forgiveness, that deep breathing? Are you most in need of doing that in your complicated relationship with yourself? Wherever it is, take heart. Because Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit and when Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit, it always generates clean air, and more specifically, the clean air of transforming forgiveness. Today, I'm simply inviting you to think about what it might mean for you to practice breathing that clean air. And don't just breathe it. Breathe it deeply. Amen.